Hi, you're listening to the Yale Anesthesiology Podcast. Make sure to visit our show website so that you can take advantage of the links of the papers that will be mentioned during this recording. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Antonio Gonzalez, and I'm thrilled to present our next guest. Dr. Sharon Reali is an assistant professor and the fellowship program director of the obstetric anesthesia program at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. She has published a significant number of papers that are relevant to our subspecialty. Besides, she has been a guest speaker at many institutions and international meetings. Today, Dr. Reali is here to talk about her publication titled Frequency and Risk Factors for Difficult Intubation in Women Undergoing General Anesthesia for Cesarean Delivery, a multi-center retrospective cohort analysis. Welcome to our podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I think we cannot start this important conversation without discussing the known estimates of the frequency of difficult intubation and failed intubation, as I think that the ever-present fear of uh, facing one of these two complications plays a role in our decision-making process of converting to general anesthesia or even changing our current MPO guidelines for patients undergoing uh, prolonged inductions. So would you please provide us uh, with this information? Yes, absolutely. But, you know, this is actually a tough question to answer. So Estimates for the frequency of difficult and failed intubation in the obstetric population actually vary widely, and they range from 0.3 to 3.3% for difficult intubation, and from 0 to 0.4% for failed intubation. But a lot of these estimates come from smaller centers or community centers or institutions outside the U.S., and the definitions of difficult and failed intubations vary based on the study. So it's actually really quite difficult to compare these rates and extrapolate the data to the patients that we be, may be taking care of, which is why we undertook our study. Right. That's what I was, I was going to ask. I'm guessing that understanding this limitation, uh, you, you uh, underwent this excellent study. So please tell us about the methodology utilizing your study. So our study was a multi-center retrospective cohort study that utilized the multi-center perioperative outcomes group or MPOG database. MPOG is actually a very unique database. It was founded in order to help facilitate the research in QI work related to perioperative outcomes and provides large numbers of cases, but also really quite granular details. So it's perfect for studying rare outcomes. Our study population included women aged 15 to 44 undergoing general anesthesia for cesarean delivery between 2009 and 2019 at any of 45 medical centers that were part of the MPOG database at the time. Our co-primary outcomes included the frequencies of difficult and failed intubation. How was difficult and failed intubation defined? Like I mentioned earlier, there really are no clear-cut standardized definitions of difficult or failed intubation. But we attempted to use the most widely agreed upon definitions as possible. We defined a difficult intubation as a Cormac-Lehane view of three or greater, the need for three or more intubation attempts, the use of rescue fiber optic intubation, the use of rescue supraglottic airway, 
or the need for a surgical intubation. And then failed intubation was a subset of the difficult intubation cases. And we defined it as any attempted intubation without a successful ET2 placement. We've, we then calculated the frequencies of difficult and failed intubation. And we looked at the nu a number of different patient airway and obstetric factors that we thought might potentially be associated with difficult intubation. As you mentioned previously, uh, most of the studies looking into the airway were not from the United States. So what sets this study apart from other retrospective studies uh, that were uh, available evaluating the frequency of difficult intubation and failed intubation? I think being able to use the unique MPOD database is what really sets the study apart. Like I mentioned, there are really very few existing studies that are large and contemporary and based on a representative group of institutions in the U.S. We were able to leverage the large scale of the MPOG database to look at a diverse group of patients and also institutions. And given that at our institution at Brigham and Women's, the rate of general anesthesia for cesarean delivery is about 1%, we really wouldn't have nearly the amount of cases to analyze at our single center as we had in the MPOG database. Yeah, I think the MPOG database provides a great centralized database for uh, researchers. So what were the main findings of your study? We identified 14,537 cases of cesarean delivery performed under general anesthesia in the MPOG database. And of these, 1,200 cases were flagged as potentially difficult based on what was an, an intentionally expansive initial definition of difficult intubation, and that actually included any mention of difficult intubation in the notes. And we made this expansive definition in order to not miss any potential cases of difficult or failed intubation. I then went through and manually reviewed all these potential difficult intubation cases and found that there were 295 true cases of difficult intubation. So the overall frequency of difficult intubation was 2% and the 95% confidence interval was 1.81 to 2.27 or overall the risk of difficult intubation was 1 in 49. Then there were 18 cases of failed intubation and the frequency of failed intubation was 0.012% or 1 in 808. I think that uh, one of the things that uh, strike me as very interesting from your study was the ultimate way the airway was secure for those patients with defined failed intubation. Um, and I think it brings up a very uh, important message. What are your thoughts about the way in which all these uh, failed intubations were ultimately secured? Yes, I agree. I think this was a really notable finding from this study. So what you're alluding to is that 18 of the 18 failed intubations were all rescued by a supraglottic airway successfully. And I think this really reminds us that even though supraglottic airways can be consider taboo in OB anesthesia, given the possible risk for aspiration, they are an important and helpful airway rescue technique. 
Also, I think it's important to consider that many GAs for cesarean delivery are performed under SAT circumstances and actually are often completed quite quickly with a short operating time. And so it's possible that the best and safest option sometimes is just to use a well-working LMA for the remainder of the case in the setting of a difficult or failed airway situation instead of continuing to try to secure the airway. What was uh, aspiration one of the f- factors was that was re- that is reported in the MPOC? We did look at whether there was um, there were any cases of aspiration, but it's not one of the um, sort of well defined metrics in MPOG. So it would I only noted it if someone had specifically said in the notes for the cases that there was aspiration. So I don't think it was necessarily the most well reported outcome, just given the way the MPOG database is set up. Yeah, I think it's important to um, make a note here because another great study that came out looking into outcomes of uh, intubations and particularly looking to aspiration in a big database was the SCORE project or the serious complications of uh, serious complications related to obstetric anesthesia that look into aspiration and none of their 5,000 GA cases um, and one of 530, one out of 533 failed intubations, none of the patients had aspirations. So that is important to keep in mind, uh, again, because we are always constantly concerned about, as you mentioned, that the patient is full stomach, but LMA seems to be a pretty good way to secure an airway, particularly in these emergent situations. So I think that was an amazing finding, and I and I think that definitely uh, the, the use of LMA plays a big role. So what risk factors were identified as predictors of difficult intubation? The patient factor that was most strongly associated with difficult intubation was a BMI greater than or equal to 40, and the odds ratio of that was 2.02. Overall, the risk of difficult intubation for a woman with a BMI of greater than or equal to 40 was 1 in 28. Then a number of airway factors, as you might expect, expect were strongly associated, including a Malampati score of 3 or 4. Specifically for a Malampati score of 4, the odds of difficult intubation was 3.79, and 1 in 12 patients with a Malampati score of 4 had a difficult intubation. Small hyoid to mentum distance, limited drop protrusion, altered neck anatomy, and cervical spine limitations were also strongly associated. Notably, limited mouth opening had an odds ratio of 8.2 for difficult intubation, and one in nine patients with a limited mouth opening experienced difficult intubation. Then the only obstetric factor that we found to be associated with difficult intubation was the presence of preeclampsia or eclampsia with an odds ratio of 1.28 and an overall 1 in 33 risk of difficult intubation. That, that is also a very interesting finding. And as, as your study concluded, most of these factors, uh, excluding preeclampsia or eclampsia, are non-obstetric in nature. Yet, we uh, the, the, the studies out there suggest that um, the failed intubation rate in obstetric patients is approx- approximately eight times higher than estimates in non-obstetric surgical patients. 
Several reasons have been proposed to explain this, including physiologic and anatomic changes in pregnancy. Could you share some of these uh, with the audience? Absolutely. There are a number of physiologic changes in pregnancy that occur that can affect airway management in pregnancy. One of the key changes in respiratory physiology is the decrease in residual capacities that occurs throughout pregnancy due to the gravid uterus. Overall, functional residual capacity decreases by 20% and actually up to 30% in the supine position, which of course is the position in which we're intubating patients. This decrease in FRC is a major contributor to the rapid desaturation seen after induction of GA. Both minute ventilation and oxygen consumption are significantly increased in the first and even more so in the second stages of labor, again, contributing to a very rapid desaturation after induction of general anesthesia. And there are also a number of airway changes both throughout pregnancy and during labor itself. Bhavani Kodali actually showed that not only do mal and potty scores worsen throughout the course of pregnancy, but they also worsen during labor itself. And this can be even further exacerbated by preeclampsia, like we discussed, for long second stages of labor. Then weight gain and breast enlargement during pregnancy may be additional factors contributing to difficulty with intubation in pregnant women specifically. Yeah, that study that you mentioned by Bavandi Kodali, it's an excellent study. And actually, it's quite impressive to see those pictures that they uh, present in that article. Now, knowing that the airway of our patient changes during their labor, um, do you would you suggest that we should be actually re-examining the patient's airway um, every two hours, every four hours, maybe every every other shift? Uh, what are your thoughts regarding the uh, evaluation of the airway periodically? I think that's a really interesting question. Of course, I think, you know, every two hours or every four hours might feel a bit excessive to the patient and even worse might scare them into scare them unnecessarily into thinking that they're going to end up with a general anesthetic, whereas chances are that they will not. Um, I think I would personally favor re-examining the patient prior to cesarean delivery or if cesarean delivery is looking imminent, especially if the patient has other risk factors that might predispose her to a difficult intubation or to needing general anesthesia. So besides the anatomic and physiologic changes uh, that were already discussed, um, the dynamic labor and delivery environment may also contribute to additional challenges. What are your thoughts re related to this? I agree. This definitely creates additional challenges. The majority of obstetric general anesthetics are administered for cesarean deliveries and are generally stats and often during off hours. This can lead to less than optimal patient positioning, particularly for women who would really benefit from a ramp. Also, excessive cricoid pressure applied by potentially a poorly trained assistant can actually worsen the glottic view at laryngoscopy. And then finally, with a decrease in the number of cesarean deliveries that are performed under general anesthesia, which of course is generally a good thing, trainees do have fewer opportunities to become familiar with the challenges of the obstetric difficult airway. Those are great points. And while a decrease in the number of general anesthesia is undoubtedly 
undoubtedly a reflection of how good we've become at using neuroaxial anesthesia uh, and avoiding general anesthesia that way. It is also uh, important to emphasize the need for training uh, the pay, the uh, training our residents uh, or trainees in obstetric in the management of the obstetric airway. An editorial published in IJOA 2007 titled Failed Intubation in Obstetrics, a Self-Fulfilling Prophecy, highlights some of the issues related to training. For example, they mentioned that in a hospital, their, their rate of general anesthesia from 1980s to 1998s Went, from, went down from 76% to 7.7%, and the number of general anesthetic administered by each resident dropped from 16 to 4. Now, in their editorial, their argument is that because we've gotten so good with neuroaxial anesthesia and our training for general anesthesia has decreased, that is what is keeping up or preventing our difficult intubation numbers to go down. Um, and, and that is their argument. What are your thoughts regarding these examples? I agree. I think these examples really do speak to our discussion on de decreased familiarity with how to manage the obstetric airway, but we certainly don't want to be moving backwards with respect to GA rates. I think appropriate planning for the possibility of encountering difficult airways on OB and also the use of high fidelity simulation will help prepare trainees and obstetric anesthesiologists alike for when they do encounter difficult airways on labor and delivery. I agree 100%. I think that high fidelity simulation should be the way to go. And it's important for our residents to, uh, or trainees to undergo this high fidelity simulation every so often uh, during their OB, before their OB rotations or during their OB rotation to maintain their airway skills. Now, now several, several studies have looked into anesthesia-related maternal mortality in the United States. There are several studies out there. Uh, one looked into the anesthesia-related maternal mortality in the United States between 1979 and 2002. And another one uh, looked at maternal mortality between 2011 and 2013. Now, looking at these timelines, one can see a decrease in maternal mortality. Some of the theories behind this reduction in maternal mortality include an increase in the use of neuroaxial anesthesia, as we have mentioned before, and subsequently a reduction in the use of general anesthesia. Besides, some argue that the increased use of video-assisted laryngoscopy and the creation of airway algorithms also contributed to this decrease in maternal mortality. Now, your study comments on the use of video-assisted laryngoscopy, but was the value of, of video-assisted laryngoscopy impacted the frequency of difficult intubation in your study? We did see a trend towards a decrease in the frequency of difficult intubation over the study period, which ran from 2004 to 2019. While we couldn't delineate any causal reasons for these trends, we did hypothesize that video laryngoscopy may have been a major contributing factor to the decrease in rates of difficult intubation over time. And certainly, I think we're seeing more and more people moving towards the use of video laryngoscopy in OB and even beyond labor and delivery. Yeah, I think the use of video-assisted laryngoscopy 
you know, it's it's definitely very important in our obstetric patient population. I, I think one, it makes your first attempt the best attempt. And also um, as a supervising uh, as a supervisor, it makes it very easy for us to see the endotracheal tube. And as soon as you see that endotracheal tube going through the course, you inflate that balloon and you let them go. And that probably uh, lets the obstetrician start a few seconds before then confirming by three consecutive uh, entitled CO2 curves, right? Agree. So what are some of the limitations of your study? Limitations to the study include those that we see in all observational electronic medical record-based data. Not all airway risk factors or airway management factors were completely documented. And unfortunately, given the limitations of the MPOG database, we were not able to identify which cesarean delivery cases were urgent versus elective, which may have impacted the ability to secure the airway. But I think the reality is that in the conditions under which we work, in which most of the GAs for cesarean delivery are emergent, we do see this relatively high risk of difficult intubation. Now, um, the MPOG seems to have a pretty high uh, overly represent, over-representation of academic centers. Do you think that these may have influenced the ultimate number of difficult intubation and failed intubations reported? You're right. The MPOG database does tend to have higher representation from academic centers, but there are a number of community sites included. And I think the diverse network of sites in the database is really like no other. But yes, the presence of trainees or alternatively the increased emphasis on neuraxial anesthesia at large academic sites may have had an impact on difficult and failed intubation rates. Now, I have one last question and then we'll end up the podcast with the uh, top five recommendations. And this is a question that has been circulating um, around in the in the internet. And what should be done in the case of a patient who had a known difficult airway, for example, a patient with a prior airway injury or a prior known difficult intubation even before pregnancy, um, who has also an, an, uh, a known difficult um, regional anesthesia or maybe a contraindication for general anesthesia. Should this be a plan C section with an awake intubation? This is certainly a very tricky situation and a patient that definitely needs to be thoroughly counseled and examined in an antenatal obstetric anesthesia clinic well before delivery. I think a very frank discussion with the patient needs to be had about the risks and benefits of general anesthesia versus neuraxial anesthesia, of course, depending on how severe or true the contraindication to regional anesthesia is. And a very frank discussion about risks and benefits of an awake intubation is needed. I don't think we would typically recommend a planned C-section just based on a, a difficult airway and inability to receive neuraxial, but Certainly the patient and the OB would have to understand that in this type of situation, there is no such thing as a stat C-section. We would need appropriate time and care to in, or, in order to safely anesthetize the patient. 
Yeah, I think that at the end of the day, communication is going to be the key for the best management of this patient. Uh, and, and definitely it's a case-by-case -case situation. So I agree 100% with your answer here. Um, so I would like to end the podcast with Dr. Sharon Reali. Top five recommendations to decrease the frequency of difficult or failed intubation in women undergoing general anesthesia for cesarean delivery. That's a great question. I think the first thing that needs to be done to decrease the, the frequency of difficult and failed intubation is to avoid GA in the first place. This can be done via multiple mechanisms. First, we should always be considering early neuraxial analgesia in women at high risk for needing operative delivery or women with risk factors for difficult intubation. Also, regular checks on laboring women with neuraxial analgesia is super important in order to make sure that their epidurals are working well and will continue to work if a cesarean delivery is needed. At Brigham and Women's, we check on all laboring patients with an epidural at least every 90 minutes to make sure their epidurals are working. And if we find that an epidural does not work or is likely to fail for cesarean delivery, we have a discussion about timely replacement with the patient. And timely and appropriate dosing of epidurals when stat or urgent cesarean deliveries are occurring is also very important to help decrease the need for GA in the first place. And then if GA is needed, which of course it is from time to time, having systems in place to help prepare for difficult airways is key. Appropriate positioning of the patient and thorough pre-oxygenation are really important first steps. And like we sort of mentioned before, at the Brigham, we always intubate using video laryngoscopy on OB in order to make sure that our first attempt is the best attempt. And then calling the airway team early on if any difficulty is encountered is very critical. Thank you so much. That was phenomenal. Uh, those five recommendations are definitely very important for everybody in the obstetric community to keep, uh, keep in mind. Uh, particularly, I think we should highlight that one about making sure that your epidural catheters are working during labor that there is no better way to decrease our general anesthesia rate than making sure that our labor epidurals are working. Uh, so thank you so much for those, um, for those great perils uh, and recommendations. Uh, this was a fantastic talk. I want to uh, give a shout out to Dr. Will Rosenblatt that uh, it's our expert uh, airway uh, in a, at our institution, and he helped me with some of these questions. So uh, thanks to Will Rosenblatt as well. Uh, and again, thank you so much for your time and uh, your contribution to our obstetric community with the excellent papers that uh, you and your uh, great research team keep, keeps coming out with. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.